everyone, my name is Madison McMahon and I'm a third year nursing student at the University of Virginia. I am one of Paige's classmates in the Jewish Weddings class and I am so excited to have joined the So You're Going to a Jewish Wedding, Now What? team. On this episode, I will be answering some fantastic follow-up questions from all of you amazing listeners, which is going to help continue to prepare you to be the best guest possible at your upcoming weddings. Or maybe you're the one who is having a Jewish wedding. This podcast is for you too. We want to thank everybody for submitting these questions and let's get into it. So let's start with a topic that is always on everyone's mind for weddings, the attire. At my 28th dress asked, what do I wear? Is this fancy enough? Am I too dressed up? Well, I'm here to give you some really good rules of thumb to think about when picking out your outfit to attend a Jewish wedding. So I will start with the fact it really does depend on the wedding. As Paige mentioned in episode one, there are many denominations of Judaism that follow different traditions and guidelines. So this pertains to attire. For example, if you're attending an Orthodox Jewish wedding, it is most likely that women will need to dress conservatively, such as covering their shoulders and wearing a dress or skirt that goes below the knees. A good idea is also to ask the family what is expected of guests. Um, Even if it's not required, it is considered respectful to dress modestly around an Orthodox family or friends. Uh, Some modern Orthodox communities have women who wear pants, uh, but to be safe, stick with a skirt. However, even if the ceremony is technically not an Orthodox ceremony, but it's being held in a synagogue, which is the Jewish house of worship, the guideline remains for women to cover their shoulders, and this can easily be done with a jacket or a shawl. For non-Orthodox synagogues, women can wear pants, but should overall dress a bit more conservatively than if the wedding is being held elsewhere. Men will typically wear a suit or a tuxedo, um, especially if the attire is known as black tie. Uh, So this brings me to my next rule of thumb. Attire may be designated on the wedding invitation. So as I said, black tie usually refers to a very formal attire. Semi-formal refers to suits and ties and cocktail dresses. And of course, it also depends on when the wedding is taking place. Definitely dress according to the style and the temperature outside. Uh, The timing of the wedding can also dictate attire, such as a summer morning wedding will slightly be a little bit more casual than a winter evening wedding. Uh, This is a great way for couples to showcase their style for their ceremony and celebration. And now, much like for most American weddings, it is a major wedding faux pas to wear white. This is traditionally the color the bride will be wearing, so it is best that no one else be wearing white. Um, Let the bride have the spotlight for the day. A commonly asked question in reference to attire for Jewish weddings includes whether or not you should wear a head covering. In the Orthodox tradition, men will wear a kippah or a yarmulke, as it is known in Yiddish. Uh, They will wear those most, if not all the time. Uh, Kippah is the Hebrew word talking about the same headpiece. And yes, I am talking about the little round hat that is usually worn towards the back of the head. In many Orthodox communities, women will also cover their hair with a hat, scarf, or even a wig. In non-Orthodox communities, women are allowed to wear a kippot, which is the plural of kippah, and more rarely decide to cover their hair with, say, a headband or a scarf. 
Now, Reform or conservative Jews will usually wear a kippah whenever they best see fit, whenever they're most comfortable. So whether that is when they're in synagogue, when they're praying, when reading sacred texts, etc. With this being said, it is not uncommon that kippah will be offered to guests of a Jewish wedding. So whether it's being held in the synagogue or outside, they'll usually be offered. So if you are offered a head covering, wear it if you're comfortable. Um, when attending a Jewish ceremony, you can definitely wear a kippah or possibly a lace head covering for women, even if you're not Jewish. So our next question was asked by Getting a Hitched Part 2. And they said, is anything done differently if it is someone's second marriage? This is a fantastic question, and it does also depend on the denomination of Judaism the couple or person belongs to. If they belong to an Orthodox or conservative community, there is first the requirement of obtaining a civil divorce or a legal divorce. Then a religious divorce document is needed, known as a get. The definition of a get is a bill of divorce. In Orthodox Judaism, a get is given to the wife by her husband if he would like to divorce her. This Jewish document is written by a scribe on behalf of the husband since he is the only one who has the authority to make the get. In conservative Judaism, however, the couple's ketubah, which you heard about in part one of this series with Paige, has a Lieberman clause, which gives the wife the authority to also give a get if she would like. The couple will then appear before a bet din or a court of rabbis who specializes in the Jewish laws of divorce. Traditionally, the divorce also requires two male witnesses to sign the get. Some may only appear in front of their rabbi and their two witnesses, um, but that really just depends on your synagogue and your community. After the get is signed, the couple is officially divorced and each receives a shatar puritin, which is a document that specifies each individual is then free to remarry. The reform movement does not require a get for a divorce um, or to allow an individual to remarry, but in recent years, many reformed Jews are actually choosing to get a get, no pun intended, um, because it is seen as a religious legal document, which many appreciate since their marriage most likely began in a religious legal sense. The big difference between the conservative and reform movements in regards to gets is that both individuals must consent to the get and the witnesses don't have to be male. And remember in conservative Judaism, either the man or the woman can initiate the get. But as I said, this is definitely up to the couple, their families, and their religious community. After the divorce is final, if one of the divorcees would like to remarry, especially if they want to be remarried by an orthodox or conservative rabbi, they will have to show proof of their religious divorce with their get. The ceremony may be a little bit different if it is someone's second marriage, such as the Aramaic wording of their ketubah, the wedding contract, may include different words based on how the previous marriage ended, such as if the person is a widow or a divorcee. If it is the bride's second marriage, then she does not have to wear a veil, and the veiling ceremony, which is known as the bedeckin, does not need to happen. So remember from Paige's episode, uh, she talked about the veiling ceremony known as the bedeckin when the groom is making sure his bride is the correct woman. Um, well, there are a few interpretations as to why a second marriage doesn't require a bedeckin. One belief says that the veil is a symbol of a married woman, and if the bride has already been married before, then the veiling is not necessary again. And another is the belief that the veil symbolizes modesty. However, 
Like many rituals, it can totally be up to the couple. If you want to wear a veil, wear that veil. Um, many of these elements of the wedding ceremony are totally up to the couple, such as who walks who down the aisle, if the individuals um, have children from previous marriages, uh, you know, how would they like their children to be incorporated into the ceremony. Uh, it's all up to the couple. It is also customary for a couple to celebrate their first marriage for seven days after the wedding. This is known as Sheva Brakot. Um, however, if both individuals have been married before, they only have to rejoice for one day after the wedding, although I'm sure they are just as excited. Um, but if there is one person in the couple who has not been married before, the full seven days of Sheva Brakot must be rejoiced. And these details and rituals are requirements of Jewish law, um, but many couples choose to celebrate in their own way according to their traditions and family customs. So you're going to a Jewish wedding. Now what? It's sponsored by Levi Bridal Shop. We have hundreds of styles of beautiful wedding gowns, whether you want a strapless gown or a long sleeve gown, a short train or a mile long train. We can help you say yes to your dream dress. We also have suits and tuxedos for the handsome grooms. Come on down today. You won't be disappointed. At Looking For My Soulmate asks, do both partners have to be Jewish? And if someone is not Jewish, do they have to go through marriage counseling before the wedding? So no, both partners do not have to be Jewish. Interfaith weddings between Jews and other faiths is very common. In fact, according to a survey done by the Pew Research Center in 2013, 58% of Jewish people who had been married after 2005 said they had a non-Jew spouse, and that number continues to be on the rise. However, again, I know I've said it for every answer so far, but it really is true. With the traditions, interfaith weddings vary. Now, within the Orthodox tradition, interfaith marriages is not typically recognized, which doesn't mean it doesn't happen, it just happens much less than in other traditions. According to the same Pew Center survey, only 2% of Orthodox Jew respondents were married to a non-Jew, so at a much lesser rate. Within the conservative tradition, rabbis are not actually allowed to officiate an interfaith wedding in accordance with their overseeing body, which is known as the rabbinical assembly. Reform rabbis generally are open to interfaith weddings and marriages and sometimes even co-officiating with other religious leaders. There is so much a couple needs to decide and discuss before, though. Many of the same things non-interfaith couples have to decide, such as location, guests, food, etc. But an interfaith couple also must consider things such as, would we like a religious leader to represent both of our religions? And if yes, are there religious leaders from both religions that will co-officiate an interfaith wedding? Another question includes what traditions and rituals from each religion would be appropriate to do at the wedding that would not be contradicting of the other partner and family's religion. Another massively important part of the celebration must also be discussed. This is important for everybody. Food. All couples have to agree on food they want to serve, but for Jewish weddings, they do have to consider that some guests may keep kosher or not eat pork or shellfish, so to make sure to have options to accommodate those traditions and practices. Many of these decisions are like puzzle pieces from each religion and faith that must fit together in order to make a beautiful puzzle that is a new life together. Many rabbis who are willing to officiate or co-officiate an interfaith wedding 
do require to meet with the couple and may have other conditions or tasks for the couple before the wedding. This may include a Judaism class for both partners or just the partner who is not Jewish. And it may also include having conversations about children the couple may have in the future and what religion they plan to raise the children with. Some rabbis may even have the condition that the couple must raise their children as Jewish for them to officiate the wedding. However, this depends. Another consideration may be where the ceremony will be held, since religious leaders of each religion may not co-officiate in another house of worship. These are all difficult conversations and decisions to make. However, they're extremely important uh, for the longevity and understanding of a marriage before the wedding. Our next question comes from at under the hubbub asked, can Jewish weddings take place anywhere or do they have to be in a synagogue? So this one may take you by surprise, but Jewish weddings can actually occur anywhere that the couple and family desires, usually. Um, Something couples must consider though is if their rabbi will officiate the ceremony at a specific location. Although it is up to the couple, so maybe you really want a specific rabbi to officiate the wedding and they will only officiate ceremonies in a specific place. Well, then you know you look for a place that the rabbi will allow. Or maybe you really don't care who, you know, which rabbi officiates, but you have your heart set on a specific location. So you'll need to find a rabbi you know will officiate in uh, that specific location. Some people will hold their wedding in their synagogue or their family synagogue. However, in recent years, couples are choosing to hold their ceremonies in many different locations, whether it be outdoors, indoors, at a hotel, at a restaurant, at a country club, a banquet hall. The possibilities are really endless. Um, Something interesting for interfaith weddings, I'll go back to our last question. So remember, there are some officiants, uh, rabbis and religious leaders from other religions, that may not officiate a wedding inside of another tradition's house of worship. So this is when outdoor or those other secular indoor locations are perfect for an interfaith couple. As I said, make sure to talk with your rabbi and any others officiating the wedding to make sure the location will do the trick. And of course, as long as there's love, joy, and a chuppah, there can be a wedding. At Father of the Bride asked, do dads typically walk the bride down the aisle? such as in a Christian or American wedding. Well, they usually don't walk her down alone. Uh, This is one of the major differences between a Jewish wedding and a Christian or secular American wedding. In a traditional Jewish wedding, the bride is walked down the aisle by both of her parents. Specifically, if the bride has a mother and a father, the father stands on the right side of the bride and the mother will stand on the left side. The same actually also goes for the groom. Typically, both of his parents will also walk him down the aisle to the chuppah at the start of the procession. Of course, this can be adjusted for a couple and their family based on their particular family structure and family members. I think this is so beautiful because it truly makes the couple feel surrounded by their loved ones and truly embodies that a wedding is a joining of not just two people, but two families. At Wedding Crashers asked, Will I be expected to know or say any Hebrew at a Jewish wedding? Are the services usually in Hebrew? And is there singing? Great question. So you can expect at least some parts of a Jewish wedding to be in Hebrew. Now for Orthodox Jewish weddings, 
almost all of the ceremony will most likely be in Hebrew. However, even if you do not understand what they are saying, you'll be able to witness key moments, such as the groom gives the bride a ring, and the couple drinks the wine, etc. And you'll pick up on things like that. For non-Orthodox weddings, many traditional blessings or prayers will be spoken in Hebrew and possibly the English translation provided. Specifically to name a few, the Sheva Brakot is a traditional part of a Jewish wedding. I mentioned this earlier, it's also known as the Seven Blessings. Um, so these blessings are said over a glass of wine, which the couple will then both drink from. This is to signify the blessing of the bride and groom's marriage and their life together. The Sheva Brakot will uh, be presented many different ways, uh, really based on how the couple would like to present it. So uh, some couples may choose to have their rabbi or cantor sing or recite the Hebrew and then the English translation. Some even choose to have friends and family come up to recite each blessing in Hebrew and then in English. The ketubah, or the wedding contract, is also typically written in Hebrew or Aramaic and uh, sometimes also translated to English. The ketubah is usually read during the wedding ceremony, so expect some Hebrew then too. However, to answer your question of will you be required to say any Hebrew at a Jewish wedding, yes, but only two words, mazel tov. So this is typically said at the very end of the ceremony, after the glass is broken. It means congratulations and good luck. You have probably heard this said in the movies or songs, so we can practice now, so you'll be ready at the wedding. Ready? Repeat after me. Mazel tov. Yes, perfect. Okay, so... If you can say those two words, you're good to go. There may also be a few times when guests will say amen at the end of a blessing to affirm the blessing. So you can participate in this practice if you're comfortable, and you can always follow the cues of when the people next to you say it. Um, to answer the question about music, yes, there is music at a Jewish wedding and beautiful singing, typically. Uh, usually traditional songs will also be in Hebrew. A very classic and beloved song played at Jewish weddings uh, is in Hebrew and it is known as Simon Tov and Mazel Tov, which, like the shouting of Mazel Tov after the breaking of the glass, this is to rejoice, congratulations, and good luck for the new couple. This song is so catchy, I totally recommend going to YouTube and searching up this song uh, to listen to it after this podcast. It is really a jam. So You're Going to a Jewish Wedding Now What is sponsored by Singing Under the Chuppah. This hit-playing band can provide the best dance music for your wedding celebration. They specialize in traditional Jewish klezmer music, but can also throw together arrangements of your favorite songs to personalize your special day. At Ready to Partay asked, what is to be expected after the ceremony? So after the glass has been broken and the mazel tovs have been exclaimed, the couple will recess up the aisle together and potentially go to a separate room by themselves for a few moments alone together. This is known as Yehud, and it is really a time for the couple to be secluded and enjoy their first minutes as a married couple together. This is a very precious time that couples may choose to spend differently. It is customary for the couple to have a snack or a meal during this time since they have been fasting the entire day of the wedding. This is the time to break the fast and celebrate alone together. The couple may also choose to exchange gifts, talk, and take the time to breathe before enjoying the rest of the celebration. Historically, this would also be the time that the couple would actually consummate the marriage. So I know we're getting a little scandalous on here, but I have to give all the facts. This is typically not done anymore. However, 
some couples may feel a little wild and decide it's time. In the Orthodox tradition, the couple must spend at least eight minutes in the Yehud. And for Orthodox Jews, this time will be the first opportunity that the couple is able to touch each other, such as hugs, kisses, hand-holding, since they were forbidden to touch before marriage. In other traditions, the timing is up to the couple and their plans for the celebration after the ceremony. It may also be important to have the couple um, during this time remain uninterrupted during Yehud. So they may choose to have people stand outside the room to make sure that no one enters the room. This may be friends or family, possibly the witnesses who signed the ketubah. However, this tradition is widely recognized and respected, so it may not be necessary to have anybody stand guard at the door. After the couple leaves Yehud, there is traditionally a celebration to follow, which includes a wedding meal, also known as Sudat Mitzvah. Now, known as this meal is maybe kosher, depending on the couple and the family. Kosher food is in accordance with the Jewish dietary laws, and there are very intricate and specific guidelines. Um, some of these guidelines include that kosher meat must be from an animal that chews its cud, uh, which are known as ruminant animals, and they also must have split hooves. Uh, so examples include cows, goats, and sheep. Um, meats and cheeses must also be prepared in a very precise way in order to keep kosher. Also expect plenty of celebration after the wedding, which of course includes wine. Um, there's also a lot of dancing to be expected at a Jewish wedding celebration, specifically and most famously the Hora. Uh, this is known as a Jewish dance circle in which the couple will typically be lifted up on chairs or tossed about on a sheet. Um, yes, I'm talking about that dance. In Orthodox tradition, the men and the women will separate and dance the Hora on their respective sides of the dance floor and separated by a partition. But for Reform, Liberal, and Conservative traditions, the Hora is danced as one big group, and this dance is usually backgrounded by traditional klezmer music, which is traditional Jewish music. Our final question comes from at the wedding planner. Do you feel that Jewish weddings have followed a similar path of Christian weddings in flocking towards fancy venues or have they tended to stay more traditional? So this is a fantastic question and one that we've actually talked about in class. So I will share my knowledge from class. According to Jenna Weissman Jocelyn's review, The Wonders of America Reinventing Jewish Culture, during the 1920s and 30s, there was a shift in American Jewish weddings to follow similar customs as Christian weddings. Some big examples of this include the shift of wedding ceremonies from synagogues to non-religious places, such as outdoors, wedding halls, and other venues. As I mentioned uh, in a previous question, nowadays it is very common for Jewish couples to not hold their ceremony in a synagogue. Another example includes each person in the couple receiving a ring, also known as a double ring ceremony. Traditionally in Jewish weddings, as you learned from Paige in episode one, only the bride received a ring from the groom. However, couples, specifically the brides, saw American women giving their husbands rings during the ceremony and wanted to have more quality like that. Jewish couples may also incorporate other American wedding customs, such as the bouquet toss, the garter toss, best man and maid of honor speeches, and other wedding traditions such as that. It's really about how the couple would like to celebrate their big day. Other examples of Jewish weddings transforming, including weddings becoming bigger and more over-the-top celebrations, which Jews have always appreciated a very joyous celebration for a wedding. 
However, ceremonies and celebrations became even larger and more expensive during this time, including fancy things such as catering, photographers, live bands, decorators, etc. All of these things and much more have become more commonplace for a Jewish wedding and have encouraged and reinvented uh, the billion dollar wedding industry that is today. A great website to check out to see some lavish and over-the-top Jewish weddings is smashingtheglass.com. There are some incredible weddings on there. Now, this may still be the case for couples uh, wanting a big over-the-top wedding, uh, but for others, they may choose to have a smaller and a more intimate traditional affair. A wedding is the joining of people, a joining of lives and homes, and this is something that should be celebrated. So whatever someone's style or budget doesn't matter. What matters is the people and the people to share in that love that the couple has for each other. A Jewish wedding has so many incredible, beautiful elements, and I'm so excited for you all to attend that Jewish wedding you're invited to. Or if you're going to be meeting your love under the chuppah soon, well, mazel tov. Thank you all so much for listening to episode two of So You're Going to a Jewish Wedding, Now What? I hope everyone enjoyed this episode and learned a thing or two. Bye.